Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. If you would please open up to Esther chapter 3. If you're in the Red Bible, it is page 411, uh, Esther chapter 3. Before we dive in, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the book of Esther and how timely it has been and how it has been such a um, critique on our own culture, on our own hearts and our own lives, and how it has just shown us your greatness. Pray you continue to do that work through your word, by your spirit today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Trish and I were first married, some of you have been here around a while, probably heard this, but when Trish and I were first married, we lived on the other side of the state, and I was unemployed, and I was looking for a job, and a youth ministry position opened up, and I thought, man, great, I can get this job, because I had a good resume when it came to youth ministry, fruitful ministry in the past, and so I applied for the position, I heard through the grapevine someone else who was applying for it, the only other candidate, and I knew this candidate, and I knew that I had a much better resume than him, um, I also knew that he probably was not ready and maturity-wise to take on this position, and so I thought, you know what, I'm a shoe-in for this position, uh, I'm going to get it, hands down, no question asked. And then I received a phone call, uh, and you can probably guess how this is going. And they say, we gave the job to the other guy. And I was so mad at that moment that I said to them, you made a mistake. And it wasn't right for me to say it, but that's what I said. I said, you made a mistake. After this gnawing at me for a couple of weeks, I was talking to the chairman of the search committee. And I, I just asked, I was like, so can you help me understand a little bit more your decision and he said to me, the reason why they chose the other guys because they wanted someone that had no experience um, because one of the members really wanted to be able to control that person. And so, uh, so that just made me more angry, more sad, more upset. And it led me to ask the question, like, God, why? Like, why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? I felt slighted and it was hurt. I was hurt. If you've ever felt slighted, uh, you can understand today's passage. If you've ever wondered, Lord, why, does this, why is this happening to me? You can understand today's passage. I know that, that many of you have shared about times you've been slighted. Maybe, maybe it's a, a job or a job promotion that you feel like you deserve and they choose the other person. Maybe, maybe it's that all of your friends are invited to this get-together except for you. Maybe it's your husband or your wife or your parents or your kids who You've invested in and they say, you know what, I really don't want anything to do with you anymore. You feel slighted and you wonder, Lord, why, why is this happening to me? That's what's going on today 
in Mordecai's heart and in the hearts of God's people. Now, before we dig into this story, I just want to give you a recap. So in Esther chapter 1, we get a portrait of King Xerxes. Uh, He's the king uh, of Persia, the most powerful man in the world and the richest man in the world. And if you remember, when he calls his queen forward to parade her in front of a bunch of drunk men, she, she declines and he casts her away, never to come before him again. And so in Esther chapter two, we have a search for the queen. And it is a scandalous process, not like the Cinderella process. It is a scandalous process. And I know this has traumatized some of you last week because you have this perfect view of Esther in your mind. But in Esther chapter 2, what we saw is that unlike Daniel, Esther was a sellout to the culture around her. She compromised her purity. She compromised her obedience to the Sabbath, to idol worship. She hid her association to the Lord by hiding her Jewish identity. Esther was a complete mess. And while I know this may have been discouraging to some of you, I have to tell you, it was a great encouragement to me personally. Because although I share Daniel's name, I am much more like Esther than I am like Daniel. There are many times I can look back at my history and see how broken and messy and sinful I have been. And it is such good news to know that God can use broken, messy, sinful people like me. And it's so good to know that that my sin cannot thwart the promises or the plan of God. And it's so good to know that when I am faithless, God is still faithful. And so I much prefer the biblical version of Esther over the VeggieTale version of Esther because I can relate to the biblical version of Esther and see that God is above and beyond all of my failures. Anyways, as we go on in Esther chapter 2, and this is important for today's passage because it leads into today's passage, but um, we read that Mordecai, Esther's cousin, Uh, is sitting at the gate and he overhears a plot to kill the king by two of the king's eunuchs. And so he reports it to Queen Vashti who reports it to the king in the name of Mordecai so that Mordecai will get the credit. And so we get to chapter three expecting Mordecai to be honored by the king. But Mordecai is slighted. His honor is given to another And I'm sure in the midst of what turns into an absolute nightmare, he's saying, Lord, why me? Why us? Why is this going on? So let's look together, Esther chapter 3. Let's look at verse 1. And the title is the enemies of God's people for this main point. Verse 1, and we're going to camp here for a while. But it says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Okay, so first again we see, we expect after chapter 2 and Mordecai saving the king's life, we expect Mordecai to be honored and promoted, but instead it is Haman. Now what is so important about this to understand is that Haman was an Agagite who came from the Amalekites, who were literally the arch enemies of the Jews. And so the Jews reading this story, hearing that an Agagite was put in charge of really the country in many ways, and we'll look at that in a little bit, they're saying, no, like anyone but an Agagite, anyone but an Amalekite. 
Now, there's a significant backstory to this between the Jews and the Agagites, and I'm going to try to go through it somewhat quickly. It's, it's a little bit in depth. But in Exodus chapter 17, uh, God has delivered his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And they have crossed the Red Sea, and they are traveling towards Mount Sinai before going to the Promised Land. And as they are traveling there, um, what happens is the Amalekites attack them. Now, we learn from a part of scripture that they attacked them in a way that is extremely cowardice. They actually went to the back of, of, the, of the parade of the Israelites and attacked those that were handicapped, the women, the children, the weak. They attacked that part of God's people. And the reason why they did this is because, because honestly, the Israelites were like sitting ducks. You know, they were slaves. They were not warriors. They were slaves in Egypt. They came out. And if you remember, one of the amazing things God's God did when he delivered the Egyptians is he gave them all the riches of Egypt, that the, that the plunder of Egypt went with them. And so here you have this people group, the Israelites, wandering through the wilderness, and they have no military training, but they have all the riches of Egypt, and the Agagites go, ooh, here is an opportunity. But then they start targeting the weak and the handicapped and the women and the children, and this displeases the Lord. And so the Lord says that um, he says, uh, this is in Exodus 17. I guess, Vlad, you can put it up. I was tempted on when to put it up or not. But verse 14, he says, And the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and re recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of the Amalekites from under heaven. And then skipping down to verse 16, it said, Moses was saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So you see here in this time, they are established as the arch enemies of the people of God. As we go forward in the scriptures, uh, we get to Deuteronomy chapter 25. And in that passage, the Lord calls them to remember what Amalek did, what the Amalek did to them when they came out of Egypt. And that when they came into the promised land and took the promised land, they, they were to wipe out the Amalekites because they would continually be opposition to the people of God. All right, so all of that takes place around 1446 B.C. Fast forward 400 years, and Saul is put on the throne as the king of Israel, all right? And now it is time, the Lord is calling him to fulfill that, that command. They have taken the promised land, uh, they're governing over the promised land, and God is calling them to go and take the Amalekites. And when God calls them to go and take the Amalekites, he says, I want you to, to wipe them out because they have attacked my kids, and I don't want them to be a thorn in the flesh of my kids for generation to generation. So go and wipe them out. Well, Saul gathers 200,000 men, goes and attacks the Amalekites who are led by their leader, Agag. And instead of wiping them out, what he does is he, he commits everything that's worthless uh, to destruction, but anything that has value and including the king, he takes as, as, as plunder to himself. And so he's disobeying the Lord. And as a result of this, the Lord uh, says to Samuel, who's a prophet, about Saul, he says, I regret that I have made Saul king over Israel. And then finally he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, this is Samuel speaking to Saul, he says, God has also rejected you from being king. Okay, so that's, that's around uh, 1000 BC. Fast forward another 500 years, we get to the book of Esther. And in the book of Esther, here we see that an Amalekite named Haman an Agagite, the arch enemy of the Jews for over a thousand years, has been promoted 
in the kingdom. He's been honored instead of Mordecai. So to try to put this in a, in a modern day example is really difficult because of the culture that we live in. But here's my best attempt. Imagine if there was a, a black man who saved the life of the president. And instead of honoring that black man, what the president did is he took the leader of the KKK and put him as vice president of the country. That would be a similar scenario, a little bit. It's really hard to draw. But that's kind of the war going backwards between these two people groups. So, so, so Haman is promoted. And, and the question is, you know, what kind of promotion is this? Look at verse 1 with me again. It says, after these things, after Mordecai saved the king's life, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and the king advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And so Haman was given really the second most powerful position in the entire empire. He was, he was the, the prime minister or the, or, or the vice president, maybe you might say. I, if you can think of the story of Joseph, if, if you are familiar with that story, this is the position Joseph was in. He was given all of this power in all of the land and he was only second to Pharaoh. But in this case... It was not a man of God put in this position of authority, but it was a son of the devil who wanted to destroy the people of God. So verse two continues, and it says, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's commands? It's a great question. Mordecai, why are you not bowing down before Haman? Verse four. And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. So Mordecai, uh, evidently after many days of, of tugging at him to find out why he will not bow down to Haman, uh, gets out of him that the reason that he won't do it is because he's a Jew. And, and the reason why his Jewishness, he won't bow down is because everything we just looked at, because they were the arch enemies of the Jews. And so Haman finds this out that, that Mordecai is not bowing down and he goes nuclear. All right, look at verse five with me. It says, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they, made, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, which is the Jews, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. You know, I think we can understand, I'm not saying it's justified, but I think we could understand why Haman would feel embarrassed and angry and disrespected by Mordecai. I think we can even understand, again, I'm not saying it's okay, but we can understand why maybe he would target him to, to hurt him. But to go after the entire Jewish people, all of the people of God, seems a bit overboard, doesn't it? The only reasonable explanation is because they are the ancient foe of the people of God, these Agagites, these Amalekites. And he thinks, finally, I have the opportunity to exterminate the Jews. You know, in Esther chapter one, we got a portrait of the king. Esther two, we got a portrait of Esther and Mordecai. In Esther chapter three, we get the portrait of the villain, okay? Every good story has a villain, doesn't it? I mean, 
You can think about villains in, in Hollywood, uh, you know, people that you love to hate, people that just drive you crazy, whether it be Darth Vader or Hannibal Lecter or the Joker. I always hated the warden from, um, from Shawshank Redemption, just made me so angry, so unjust. Maybe for the kids, Scar from Lion King, you know, there's those villains. Growing up, the, the one that I was most afraid of uh, was uh, the guy from James Bond with metal teeth. I think his name was Jaws, if you remember him, and I had nightmares about him. But, but all of these stories have a villain. Here, our villain is Haman, an Agagite, an Amalekite, the ancient foe of the Jews. Christian, we too have an enemy. We too have a foe, an ancient foe, that's actually older than Agag and, by the, and older than the Amalekites. It's a, it's a foe that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, a foe that sought to confuse and distract Adam and Eve from the goodness of God. He is crafty and cunning, and he's still at work today. He detests the people of God. He hates Christ's church. He's the devil, and he is the enemy behind all of God's enemies here in this world. People like Haman. There are many Hamans in the world, and the devil is behind them. Jesus puts it this way. He says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. But then he goes on and says, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. And so he's still at work through Haman's in this world. Maybe you've heard the saying that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled off was convincing the world that he didn't exist. We shouldn't be fooled. The devil is still at work in this world through his, his minion of Haman spread throughout the world. I mean, if you need proof of the work of Satan in our world, all you got to do is turn on the nightly news. I mean, it will take you five minutes to see there is humanity waging war against humanity all of the time. The devil and his Hamans are the ancient enemies of God's people. But what is the threat to God's people? Let's move on. Verse 6 says, But he, Haman, disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, um, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And so for 12 months, Haman's cronies, I guess, cast lots. Basically, uh, they threw dice and they were looking, I guess, for a certain formula where it would say, okay, now's the time to move forward with the genocide. And so they're doing this for six months. I don't know if they're looking for triple sixes or what. I don't know what it is. But, but finally, after six months, they get the sign that it's time to move forward with the genocide. So verse 8 continues. It says, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, which is true. And he says, their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. 
and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may be put into the king's treasury. There's a couple really important things that we see here in this passage. Uh, First off, Haman is building this case on partial truths. He's saying that they don't obey the king. In reality, it's just one guy not obeying one command of the king, which is to bow down to Haman. And and that upsets him. And so he kind of paints this broad brush. They don't obey anything. I mean, we just saw in the previous chapters that they obey almost to a fault, right? Sometimes to a fault. But he takes these half-truths to justify this, this desire to exterminate them. And then, and, then the king, and then Haman petitions the king and says that it will be to his profit that he will give him 10,000 talents of silver. This would be equivalent to over half of the empire's annual tax, tax revenue. And to be honest with you, they needed the money. Uh, uh, the emperor just went through a costly defeat against the Greeks. And furthermore, if you remember just at the end of the last chapter when he threw this feast for, for Esther, he, he forgave taxes for a season. And so he could use the money. And so, um, so he says, so as we'll see, he'll say yes to it. But one more observation that's really interesting here is that when Haman comes to the king and says, hey, there are these people who are a thorn in our flesh, who don't obey us, that we should just get rid of them. What's interesting is that he never mentions who the people group is. He never says it's the Jews. Now, if you're a good king, you're going to at least ask who are the people that you want to destroy. But the king never does. And so as we look at this passage, and it continues, we see the king's response. Verse 10 says, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. The passing of the signet ring was a death blow for the Jews. Again, a modern equivalent of it would be like if the president of the United States gave the football to the vice president without any questions asked. Now, what's the football? Maybe you know, maybe you don't know. So the football is also called the nuclear or atomic football. And it's a briefcase that goes wherever the president goes. And it is carried by military aid. But this football, what they call it, the football, inside of it is the launch codes for the nuclear weapons of the United States. And so this follows with them everywhere so that at any moment in time, and this is kind of scary, but at any moment in time, the president can launch a nuclear weapon at any people group in the entire world. And so if he said, you know, if the vice president came to him and said, hey, I really want to get rid of a people group, he's like, all right, here's the football, go take care of it. That's kind of what's happening here. When he passes on the ring, King Xerxes is giving Haman the right to commit mass genocide with no questions asked. And the reason is because King Xerxes wanted the money. And I need to clarify it because it's confusing here. Verse 11 says this. It says, And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So it seems like here the king is saying, I don't want your money. Just go and take the briefcase and do what you want. Enter the launch code. Go wipe them out. I don't care. It's not an actual offer. Um, It was common in Middle East to make these offers, and they really didn't mean anything. For example, you see in, uh, in Genesis 23, Ephron offers to give Abraham the field. Abraham politely refuses, and then Ephron 
raises up the price and says, this is what I'm going to charge you. I mean, today, for example, if a kid has a birthday party, um, it is common courtesy to say, don't feel like you need to bring any presents. But everybody brings presents, right? That's kind of how it works. Furthermore, if you look at verse 7 in the next chapter, we see that it is intention to pay the king money for, for, this, for this right to exterminate the Jews. And the thought is that that money would come from plundering the Jews that they killed, okay? So the king wants to do this for the money. Um, Haman wants to do it because he hates the Jews and he wants to eliminate them. Verse 12 says, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and the officials of all the people to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. So it was an irrevocable decree. Verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Could you imagine what it would be like to be on the other side of that law? to know that, that you and your family had a year to live and after a year it would be law that your neighbors could hunt you and take your stuff. I mean, the panic must have been overwhelming. I, I, I mean, I think any faithful Jew, anyone would be saying, Lord, what's going on here? Why is this happening to us? Where are you, Lord? It continues, verse 14. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclaiming to all the people to be ready for that day. The curries went out hurried by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And so there is this mass chaos in the city and yet the king and Haman sit down completely comfortable, completely assured of their own power to carry this out. Now, you might say, well, we don't live in a country like this, right? I mean, we don't have people chasing Christians with machetes, and I'm thankful that we don't live in such a country. But make no mistake, there are Christians around the globe that are persecuted to this extent, that are hunted and that are killed. One website it looked like said 29 was one of the bloodiest years for Christians, that, that 90,000 Christians were killed because of their faith. That's about one every six minutes. And so this still exists around the world, but let's, let's bring it closer to home. Let's bring it to Green Bay. What attack is there against us from the evil one? Well, from a societal standpoint, we see that there's a lot of opposition to God's ways, right? To a biblical view of marriage, to a biblical view of gender, to a biblical view of just about everything. There's an attack from the culture. But let's press it even a little bit more personal. Where do you see our ancient foe attacking you? Maybe he's attacking you through addictions. Maybe he's attacking you through a bitter heart. Maybe he's attacking you through anxiety. 
Maybe he's attacking your marriage, seeking to destroy. I think he's attacking the church and working overtime right now, just in general, the church at large, not Jake as well. But yesterday we had Presbytery, which is all these sister churches coming together and pastors give up and give reports. And almost every single pastor got up and said, the last six months have been the hardest six months of my ministry career. Satan is at work. He is seeking to destroy. He seeks to attack us in global ways, but also very personal ways and in his church as well. And so the question is, what hope do we have? Well, the final point we see, the salvation of God's people or the victory of God. Embedded in this chapter, which is a chapter of of complete, I mean, if you got this, you'd just be devastated. But in the midst of this devastating chapter, there are hints of the salvation that God is about to bring. Verse 7, it says this, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, okay, as they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. I don't know about you, but 12 months seems like a long time, day after day, to cast lots to wait. But the right numbers did not come up until after 12 months. Months. Now, here's the thing. You see this word per in here, which is casting lots. The plural of that is perium. And one of the points of the book of Esther is to establish the celebration of perium, okay, where God delivered his people. I know I'm giving away the end of the story, but he delivered his people from Haman and from the Persians, okay, from certain death. And the reason why they call it perium is because God controls the lots. God controls the casting of die. Proverbs 16.33 says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so they call this festival Purim because God is in control of all of these things, even the casting of lots to accomplish his purposes. This is the first hint of salvation. The second hint is later down. After the king gave Haman the the thumbs up and the signet ring to commit genocide. In verse 12, we read, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. The 13th day of the first month probably does not mean much to you. But let me ask you this, and I want response. What is December 24th? Christmas Eve, right? Everybody knows that's Christmas Eve. The 13th day of the first month is Passover Eve. And so on Passover Eve, when the people of God are about to celebrate God's deliverance from slavery and from bondage, what do they get as a gift? They get this edict that they're going to be killed, that they're going to be annihilated, that they're going to be wiped out. And so certainly they're wondering, Lord, what is going on? Why is this happening to us, Lord? Where are you? Where is the God who delivered his people out of Egypt? Is he going to deliver us again? And then as the story continues, we know that he does. But many years later on another Passover God gives ultimate deliverance to his people. And and that Passover, it was not just a simple Passover lamb, but the lamb was the son of God who would take away the sins of the world, who hung on the cross looking completely defeated as his disciples were wondering, Lord, what are you doing? Where are you in all this? And yet God was accomplishing their salvation. 
And then on the third day, Christ rose again from the dead, defeating our ancient foe, the devil, giving victory over sin and death. And so we celebrate on a weekly basis the Passover with the Lord's Supper. That death has passed over us because of Christ. And we celebrate on an annual basis. The, excuse me. We celebrate on an annual basis um, the resurrection through Easter. And so because of that, we are reminded that God is faithful to his promises to save his people. Let me end with this. Um, in the 1500s, it was a very difficult time for the people of God. They were being persecuted for wanting to, to, to know the scriptures, to talk about the scriptures, to preach the scriptures, to, to put forth the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, our ancient foe was at at work seeking to destroy this movement, this revival. And Martin Luther was at the center of that revival that was going on in the church. And yet in the midst of just tremendous agony and pain and threats and attacks, he wrote one of the most famous hymns ever, which we sang earlier today. He said, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, for still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. Do we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. He must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Christians, there is a constant attack. I don't know if you've ever felt like someone is against you. Someone is against you, our ancient foe, the devil. But the good news is that God never gives up on his promises. He never gives up on his people, and he will always accomplish his purpose of salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much again, for reminding us that we are in the midst of a battle, but we do not battle alone. You battle with us, Lord. You walk with us. You battle for us. You go before us, Lord. And so God, help us to rest, to be still, and to know that you are God, even in the midst of the battle. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.